Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, James Rogers, and this is the Warfare Podcast. For the past month, we have been dedicated to shedding light on the Forgotten War. It feels a lot less forgotten to us now, but this is the Korean War. And I'd just like to start by thanking the Warfare team, to Elena, Sophie and Aidan for all their incredible hard work. They're the ones who have secured our on-site recordings in places like HMS Belfast and all our fascinating guests. So if you've enjoyed the podcast, if you've enjoyed all the hard work and you're continuing to enjoy the podcast, then wherever you are around the world, pop us a five-star review on apple podcasts or now with one click on spotify or wherever you get your podcasts really because it helps us to get out there to everyone who loves history and to keep us doing what we love as for this episode well this is the climactic final episode of our korean war mini-series and along the way we have covered perspectives from the un allied forces the veterans who served in the conflict south korean civilians and like i said we even took you on board hms belfast to find out about the history of that rapid response ship Yet we are missing a perspective and we need to rectify that. So we're going to look into the North Korean perception of the Korean War. Specifically, we're going to focus in on the Kim dynasty. It's often overlooked, but the Kim family rule was forged out of the fires of conflict. Its supreme leader, Kim Il-sung, the grandfather of the current leader, Kim Jong-un, was an officer fighting for the Soviet Union during the Second World War. And the entire political, social and military workings of the nation today continue to focus on and be built around war, specifically nuclear war. So, to take us through this remarkable history and to bring a close to our Korean War miniseries, we welcome back Gene H. Lee to the podcast. Gene became the first American reporter granted extensive access on the ground in North Korea. Gene also presents the BBC World Service podcast, The Lazarus Heist, and it's all about how North Korea almost pulled off a billion dollar cyber hack. As such, she has the rare in-country knowledge needed to take us through that history of North Korea and perceptions of the Korean War. Enjoy. Hi, Jean. Welcome back to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me back. 
Not a problem at all. We have unfinished business here. We've gone deep into the history of South Korea and the South Korean experience during the Korean War. But now I think it's time that we started to look to the North and some of the perspectives and experience of that side of the conflict. So am I right in thinking that today the Korean War, we call it the Forgotten War, but in terms of being discussed in South Korea, it isn't something which is often on the uh, front pages, it's not as much as part of the social consciousness, but when it comes to the North, this is something that's deeply enshrined in what it means to be North Korean. Absolutely, and that is such an, an important point. And we call it the Forgotten War. And I'm always shocked at how young South Koreans are somewhat oblivious to their own history. But as soon as you land in North Korea, you're confronted by the specter of war. And it seems almost anachronistic, but the society there is completely militarized. You see soldiers everywhere. I mean, it's interesting because I just looked at my bookshelf and all the books about North Korea written by us are read. But all the books written by the North Koreans, and I've got probably one of the largest private collections of North Korean books, are green. And I was trying to think about this, and I think it's that military aspect. The regime wants to keep the people feeling like they are under threat of war. And it's a state of mind that has been incredibly useful for the Kim family, the ruling family of North Korea, in maintaining a sense of threat from the outside world. It's what gives them the rationale and the justification to continue diverting resources that they don't have into defense. And it's a way to maintain a sense of national unity and sense of pride in the face of incredible economic difficulty. So when you go to North Korea, it's all about the war. And it is strange because we've forgotten about it everywhere else. We've forgotten about the Korean War, but they very much kept it alive in North Korea. And absolutely, it's so important to understand that strategy in order to understand why it is they are building nuclear weapons, why that's so important in figuring out how to deal with them. But that's it, isn't it? You've hit the nail on the head. It's a strategy, almost like a a political strategy for survival. It's vital for the regime security of the Kim dynasty to constantly be perceived as being under attack. That's how you can keep a population together in a wartime spirit and justify the legitimacy of the regime. They need to be in power. They need to be supreme leaders in order to ward off their capitalist foes. If we go back to the very founding of North Korea and Kim Il-sung, is this exactly what brought him to power? So Kim Il-sung built his legacy around this mythology that he was a guerrilla fighter. The mythology around him tries to paint this portrait of him almost single-handedly fighting off the Japanese. And I think it's important to remember that he came of age during this Japanese colonial period and that Korea's sovereignty, Korea's independence was really core to his entire childhood, upbringing, and worldview. He maintained this for decades, this idea of him as a guerrilla fighter fighting off foreign interference and occupation. It started with the Japanese, and then he also saw the Americans, who had troops on South Korean soil as occupiers of Korea. And so these became the two major foes that you see illustrated in North Korean textbooks all over their propaganda, the historical foe of Japan, 
and then the current occupation, as they call it, of Korea by the United States. Now, I should mention that if we go back in history, he was really building his legacy around a theme that the Koreans were very familiar with. They had been dealing with and fending off challenges and attempts at this type of domination from foreign countries for hundreds of years. You had the Chinese, various factions from the Chinese, from Japan, from the West, and Koreans had always, you know, we used to call it the Hermit Kingdom. They always recognized that if they didn't protect themselves, they would very easily be absorbed by these outside powers. And so they've, in a sense, grown up in a tradition of being fiercely uh, proud of their, their heritage and fiercely persistent in holding on to what they believe is Korean. And that was what Kim Il-sung built his ideology around, this idea that Korea needs to remain sovereign needs to fend off foreign interference. And he was very successful in convincing his people that he was the one to do it. However, in reality, he spent a lot of time in the Soviet Union. His son, Kim Jong-il, was actually born in the Soviet Union. They were in Siberia, even though legend has it in North Korea that he was born on Mount Pektu, the sacred mountain in North Korea. Actually, he was believed to have been born in Siberia when his father was a young officer for the Soviet army. And so Kim Il-sung's ties with the Soviet Union go way back to his early, you know, to his youth. And when Korea was liberated after the Japanese surrender, he later in 1945 made somewhat of a triumphant return from the Soviet Union to North Korea and staked his claim as Korea's leader by claiming that he had single-handedly engineered the Korean Peninsula's liberation is he good friends with Stalin? Does he court Mao particularly well? Are they are the three of them together? Do they engineer this invasion? Or is Kim Il-sung also a bit of a firebrand? Does he push this himself in an attempt to try and reunify the Korean peninsula? Kim Il-sung was a young man at the time, and he was, he was in his early 30s. And I think that the Soviets probably saw him as their man in Pyongyang, the young guy who was somewhat malleable, and would do what they wanted to maintain this Soviet influence in Pyongyang. And I think he played that game to a certain degree, but he had much bigger ambitions. But he did need to, it's interesting, he did need to lobby Stalin for help and permission, in a sense, to launch that invasion. But I think that he was may have been seen by Moscow as their convenient person in the convenient young acolyte in Pyongyang, but he had much bigger ambitions, and that was an ambition to reunify the Korean Peninsula. And that is a fight that I think many Koreans believe in the reunification of the Korean Peninsula. But is it under communist control? Is it under North Korean control? Or one that is reunified under South Korean control? That lies at the core of the conflict of the Korean War as well. Because if you're China and you see these U.S. troops coming up on your border, you do not want a unified Korean peninsula with, under U.S. influence with troops right up on your border. And that was precisely why they poured so many troops into the Korean War in 1950, was to push back that U.S. presence and to defend their own border, so to speak, and to create that, reestablish that buffer zone between them and the Americans. And in some ways today, North Korea still plays that kind of a role for China. 
Well, it was a, a particularly brutal conflict. You can talk about the thousands and thousands of military deaths, but we're looking into the millions for civilians. So when it comes to talking about the, the North Korean military and their move over the border, and of course later supported by the Chinese and Soviet air power, do you start to see a deliberate focusing on targeting civilians by Il-sung and the Korean troops? Or is he true to his word in the idea of reunifying and so protecting civilians? I think that one of the patterns that we've seen consistently with the Kim family is that though Kim Il-sung portrayed himself as a man of the people and a man who cared about the people of North Korea, what was more important to him was to maintain power and to maintain Korea's sovereignty. And the Kims were very willing to let people fall by the wayside in favor of this much larger goal. Now, I'll just put it in very stark terms today. When we look at North Korea today, Kim Jong-un, his grandson, who's the third generation Kim now to lead North Korea, I believe is fully convinced that without him and without a Kim in power, North Korea will not exist. And he's doing everything that he can to make sure that he stays in power. And by extent, his family's vision for North Korea remains intact. That means diverting resources into the nuclear program, into their strategy at the expense of the well-being of the North Korean people. This is a country where, you know, South Korea is the world's 10th largest economy. It is a bustling, busy, vibrant, modern, I mean, postmodern in some ways country. For me to go between Seoul and Pyongyang was always just like stepping back in time. You go from a country that is one of the world's largest economies to a country that is one of the smallest. And you go from a country that's the most wired in the world to one that is almost completely disconnected. When I am in North Korea, it almost looks the way it did in 1953 when at the close of the conflict, when the fighting ended, it's completely destroyed. And so I do think that in ways, you know, the Kim family has held on to this idea that this country will not exist without us. And yet the cost to the people has been immense. They are living without anything. And so when we talk about, do they care about the Korean people? I think they care about the future of their country, but it has come at great expense to the North Korean people. I do think that Kim Jong-un wants to carry out his grandfather's legacy, but it is going to come at a huge price for the people of North Korea. From Wondery, American History Tellers is a podcast that explores extraordinary events from the history of the United States and brings them to life. And in an all-new season, you'll learn about a tragedy that is often overlooked in American history, the Great Mississippi Flood. In the summer of 1926, the American Midwest saw rainfall like it had never seen before, and there was only one place for all that rain to go, the Mississippi River. In total, the flood submerged 27,000 square miles in seven states, destroying crops, paralyzing transportation, and washing away hundreds of farms and communities. By the time the floodwaters receded, as many as 1,000 Americans were dead, and more than 600,000 were left homeless. Learn about the forgotten history of one of America's worst natural disasters, 
and how the racism, exploitation and betrayal that followed it transformed the American landscape forever. Listen to American History Tellers on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen one week early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, let's talk about these attempts to transform and reform North Korea under Kim Il-sung's long rule. What do we see implemented during that period from, was it 1948 to 1994? I mean, that's one hell of a tenure. It's really more of a monarchy. I mean, I always say that we need to look at North Korea as a monarchy rather than as a, can we call it a communist monarchy? If such a thing exists, it really is royal rule by one family. And if you look at it as a monarchy, it's fascinating because, okay, so when I was in North Korea, I was watching the Tudors, <laughs> the TV drama, and I had to put the headphones on because it was so chillingly reminiscent of what's happening in North Korea today. So really kind of a repressive rule to try to stay in power. And that kind of um, the court drama and the vying for power that we see among different factions that was happening in the early years under Kim Il-sung and I think continues today. So it's interesting to look at North Korea that way as a communist monarchy, if such a thing exists. 
And to recognize that also the kings were borrowing from some of the methods that the kings of Korea past used as well to maintain power and to keep their people in line. So it's such an interesting mix of socialism, yes, communism, yes, but also some of these very outdated and repressive methods that had been used for centuries by kings past, and so in some ways were familiar to the Koreans. And what were these measures? So one of the things about North Korea is that almost everything is essentially owned by the state, right? There's very little private ownership. And just like a king, everything belongs to the king or to the royal family in some sense. Everything belongs to the Kim family in North Korea. They are treated like they are gods. And so this is a country where if you say anything in opposition or even do anything to deface the image of a member of the Kim family, that's considered treason. So really extreme forms of control. Uh, there's very little freedom of movement. You need permission to travel in and out of Pyongyang, for example, and to travel in and out of some of the other parts of North Korea. I think the um, idea of punishment is very much a part of their daily lives as well. So if you violate their incredibly immense penal code, then the threat of punishment is always very high. What sort of laws are we talking about there? Give us an insight into what will get you into prison, into trouble in North Korea. Is there something that people often fall foul of? I mean, we've heard terrifying reports of tourists being taken into North Korean captivity and, of course, never coming back out. Is that the same for the North Korean population? Absolutely. I think the North Koreans live in a constant state of fear. They are constantly watched. They have a system of espionage and spying and reporting on one another that pervades their everyday life. It's not like they walk around in total terror all the time. They grow up in this. So they're very aware of what they can and cannot say, how they should and should not behave. And I think those who may have grown up under Nazi Germany might recognize some of this. This is what it's like to grow up in a repressive police state. Uh, that's very much a part of their daily lives. It's much harder for us, those of us from the West, we're just not used to that. But it's very palpable when you spend a lot of time there like I do. And it preys on your psychological well-being. And so that does give me insight into what it's like to live every day as a North Korean bound by these very repressive rules. You know, for example, we take for granted the freedom to surf the Internet. Well, very few people have access to the Internet in North Korea. If you do, you need to have permission and it's very closely watched. There's quite a lot of material that is made available to the North Koreans. This is something that surprised me, but it's all vetted by the regime. And if you go outside of those boundaries and look for information that has not been approved, then absolutely you face punishment. And so, yeah, these are things that we take for granted. I certainly don't take them for granted having spent so much time in North Korea. I don't take for granted the beauty of being able to go for a walk or to, you know, and our world is falling more and more under AI and surveillance. But it's not, for the most part, something we worry about on a day-to-day -day basis. In North Korea, it is very much a part of their daily lives. They grow up with this culture of fear, and that's precisely how the state security keeps them in check. They've created a system where they report on each other, they keep tabs on each other, and where their every move and their every step is watched. So this is disturbing levels of thought policing 
writ large. Was there at any point in recent history that there was any chance of reform, that there were more rights for the North Korean people, that there was potentially a a chance at peace? How about when Kim Jong-il became the leader in 1994? Was there any chance of change then? We always looked at these transitions as opportunities, right? Would a new leader mean a new era? And could that bring change? But actually, for the Kims trying to hold on to power, transition is very tenuous. And we hadn't, until Kim Jong-il took power, seen a transition, a hereditary transition in the communist world. And so we were not sure that it was going to go smoothly. And frankly, it wasn't that smooth. It took him three years to really step into that position. And I think uh, it was at a time that was really tough for the North Koreans. They were going through a famine. (laughs) So it wasn't a great time. I think that he didn't have the same kind of popularity that his father did. And so he had to come up with a strategy on how he was going to convince his people that he had the legitimacy to rule. And that was what he did was to do it on the back of the military and to militarize North Korea and to really focus on the threat of war from the outside. And that strategy of using the fear of of an outside threat, effectively used in countries around the world, to try to bring his people and to enforce some of these repressive measures that we see in North Korea today. Now, with Kim Jong-un, it was really interesting. So Kim Jong-un was this young man, he was in his 20s, who, while I was in North Korea, was being trained to step into this role as the next leader. Nobody knew who he was. He was kept completely under wraps during his entire childhood. And I think that that was probably a source of concern. So Kim Jong-il, his father, had a stroke and was in a coma for a while. And that was actually my first day of work as the AP Seoul bureau chief. That was the day we learned that Kim Jong-il had disappeared. And it was complete chaos and turmoil because, I mean, when you think about the modern world that we don't, that this A leader of a country has gone missing and no one knows where he is. Is he dead or alive? Who's next? He hasn't tapped successor. They've got nuclear weapons. What's going to happen and avoid a power vacuum? So that that was my introduction to Korea. But it was really interesting as we saw this young man being prepared for this position. When he did, and I was there on the plaza when he stepped forward and presented himself to the people of North Korea, There is this sense of, oh my gosh, you know, a sense of hope. And the North Koreans were really looking for change. And I do think that the North Koreans also wanted to use that transition as an opportunity for change. So around that time, we saw a lot of change. Okay, change, you have to put this into context. Change happens at a glacial pace in a place like North Korea. But for North Korea, it was enormous change. We started seeing them producing products. Like, for example, I went to the first supermarket that opened up. That was a joint venture with a Chinese supermarket. And I still remember going to the supermarket and having to explain to North Koreans how you shop. Because this concept of being able to choose items from a shelf was not something they were used to. So, but just this, I, they were, there was a lot of transition around that time. We started to see a return to fashion. We started to see a lot of parks and pools and skating rinks. There was even a skateboarding ramp. And a lot of this was designed to build loyalty among the next generation. So this was almost a North Korean renaissance to a point. Under this man who was the third son 
of his father and was Western educated and I think was educated in Switzerland. So all of this must have seemed to the West like all of their Christmases come at once. This was the moment that North Korea was going to thaw. What went wrong, Jean? Yeah, I mean, I think that there were a lot of high hopes, and at least among us in the outside world, that he had gleaned something from those years in Switzerland, and he was going to be a different kind of leader. But we have to remember that he was a young man, very little known among his own people, very little on his resume, and that he had to deal with the challenge at home, most likely, of the old guard, wondering whether he was the right Kim to take over as leader. And so I sometimes think, who would Kim Jong-un be if he didn't have all this pressure to maintain the country that his grandfather created and, and maintain control of this country that he really believes will only exist if he remains in power? Who would he be? Yeah, he might be a different person in a different country. He might have been much more open to letting his people have access to the internet, have access to the outside world. But all of that started to look like a threat to him. All of that access to the outside world was a threat to his leadership. And so I think that we have to remember that he was trying to balance not only the challenge of dealing with a very impoverished economy, relations with countries that were very much at odds with North Korea, but also the military back at home and maybe a skeptical public. And so he was juggling all of these things and had to come up with a strategy that would first and foremost cement his legacy, and his power. And so his strategy was really all about how do I establish and cement my power so that I can carry out this vision that my family has for North Korea. And the 10 years of his rule have really been all about that. So vanquishing anyone who might be a threat, really truly brutal examples of assassination, which we've seen throughout the Kim family reign, his own half-brother, King Jong-nam, was assassinated in, in a Malaysian airport. Absolutely, in 2017. And that was an assassination that most likely would have either been sanctioned or certainly would have had the approval. And we know that partly because his half-brother's death was never announced in North Korea. So I think that he has been preoccupied with how he's going to stay in power. Now, the next phase of that, I would like to think, will be about the vision that he has for the future of mm -hmm. North Korea and how he's going to manage to hold on to power for decades to come does rely on whether he's able to turn his country's economy around. But I think that he is looking at nuclear weapons as the core of his strategy, both to prove to his people that he can defend them and to pay off financially. And he is going to want those weapons to pay off in some form of a nuclear deal in the years to come. But isn't the problem that when you define your entire regime and country within the cauldron of war, and the only reason why your regime exists is in order to ward off that enemy, then any attempt to try and find peace or reconciliation, they devalue the purpose and legitimacy of your entire regime and its existence. And so for as long as there is a Kim dynasty, there has to be this war footing. I think that's a very good point. And it's precisely why he hasn't made a turn toward peace fully. We saw some glimmers of opportunity in 2018, but the war has been so good for the Kim family. 
they have taken such advantage of it. It's served them well. And I think it would be very hard for Kim Jong-un to turn away from that. I do think that he toyed with that idea that he knows that his people are tired of war. They are absolutely tired of war. And I think he is too. But he needs it to pay off for him. And he's not going to walk away from it until he gets what he needs and gets what he wants. And that's a very high price for the world to pay. So will we reach that point? I don't know. Will he ever reach a point where he can make what is truly a big strategic decision to move away from that war? I don't know, because I'm not sure that anyone's willing to pay the price tag that he demands. Well, Jean, thank you so much for taking us through this little-known history of North Korea's perspective of the Korean War, and really how it underpins everything that we see within North Korean politics today. Tell us, where can people learn more about this topic and also engage more with your work? So thank you so much for having me on. And we do cover quite a bit of this in the podcast that I co-host with Jeff White for the BBC World Service. It's called the Lazarus heist. And it is about North Korean cyber. But behind all of this, of course, is Kim Jong-un. So we go into quite a bit of Korean, North Korean history to try to explain why North Korea has invested in some of the world's most aggressive hackers. And of course, what that means for all of us. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram as NewsGene. And my website is jhlemedia.com. And definitely check out Gene's podcast, Lazarus Heist, which is a award-winning podcast. Congratulations. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun and we will be coming out with season two in October. I very much look forward to that, Gene. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2 on Instagram at James Rogers History and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance. Insurance company. They offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. And before you go, remember, as a warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War, and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day, from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross, and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland. 
further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.